This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Mitch, the letter you got from Bendini, Lambert, and Locke was the only one sent out. We want you. Do you have an offer in mind? It includes a bonus schedule, and we'd lease you a new Mercedes. Plus a low-interest mortgage. As in home? With grass around? A two-car garage. Did you ever think I'd make a six-figure salary? Absolutely. But the six-figure salary and perks Tom Cruise got to join the firm are less than what many young lawyers are getting today in exorbitant signing bonuses that can go as high as $250,000 and bonuses for senior associates of as much as 140000 And there are also the perks, luxury gifts, additional vacation time, and extended work-from-home arrangements, all part of the new dynamic in the law firm war for associates who often work a grueling 100 hours a week. It is definitely bananas. It's hard to call it anything else. I mean, I've been doing this now for eight years, and I've never seen the market as crazy as it is right now, especially in terms of compensation and bonuses and signing bonuses and kind of everything firms can do to get and retain talent. And Summer Eberhard, managing director at legal recruiter Major Lindsay in Africa, says it's corporate associates who are most in demand transactional work specifically in the corporate space. So talking about mergers and acquisitions, capital markets, some emerging companies work, that part of the legal practice has just boomed over the last probably six to eight months. And because of that, the demand for corporate associates is way beyond what the supply is. There's just not enough corporate associates to fill the number of roles that are out there. And so firms are turning away clients are turning away work because they don't have enough people to do it. And so that, I think, is where we're seeing so much of these signing bonuses come into play is that they're wanting to pay that because they need to get attorneys to be doing some of that work that they are turning away. Joining me is Megan Tribe, Bloomberg Law Correspondent. So, Megan, tell us about this hot market for associates. So it's a far cry from where I think firms thought they would find themselves in March of last year as the pandemic shuttered offices and sent folks home. Most big law firms really had a very, very successful 2020, and they were called upon to do a whole bunch of work from restructuring to M&A, particularly capital markets, once the markets picked up towards the end of last year. And so associates, along with partners, have been exceptionally busy. So as a way to both reward associates for their work, but also in order to retain and attract new associates, firms have turned to a series of bonuses to incentivize those folks to stay, but also to recruit amid a incredibly frenzied lateral market for associates. So last year in the fall, firms issue special bonuses for the first time in addition to year-end bonuses. And earlier this spring, big law firms have issued a pair of bonuses, a spring and a fall bonus ranging from $15,000 for first-year associates all the way up to $100,000 for senior associates. That combined with a potential year-end bonus could be some senior associates getting in excess of $150,000 this year. So it's more to try to keep them rather than to keep them happy. 
it's a little bit of both. A very big part of it is to keep them. It really goes back to the fact that these associates are working sometimes 13, 14 hours a day. And this is a way to get them to stay at the firm. But the other half of this is in order to keep them happy. Some firms have started experimenting with things beyond just purely cash. So some firms like Oric have offered an unplugged time, so 40 hours of vacation time a week in order to give associates a chance to recharge. So they're really kind of thinking out of the box in order to keep associates happy. But it does always kind of beg the question, you know, is the money enough to keep you happy you have the unplugged time, the one week mm-hmm. thank you, and luxury gifts. What's that? So earlier this year, Davis Polk and Wardwell allowed some of its associates to pick from a series of gifts ranging from, I believe, a wine experience to entertainment centers to travel accessories and a shopping spree to thank their associates. Um, Davis Polk, it should be noted, was one of the firms that moved on special bonuses last year and set the new bar for bonuses this year as well. The bar, usually law firms, the big law firms, pay the same for first-year associates. It's sort of across the board. Does that remain the Mm -hmm. same? Yes. So salaries haven't moved. So salaries have been static in big law since about 2018. And they all move in lockstep. So that means essentially you're paid base salary based on your class year. So a first year associate can expect to get 190000 base salary for the year. And then bonuses also operate in the same structure. So they're structured by class year. The, the salaries are in lockstep. Are the bonuses in lockstep or is that yes. different? Yes. Essentially, yes. They all operate in lockstep. They aren't competing with each other on bonus amounts. But what we are seeing is law firms turning to signing bonuses, for example, to offset that. Signing bonuses in excess of, you know, six figures in some cases for really sought after attorneys. And that's in addition to the spring, fall, and potential year-end bonus. New York City usually has the highest associate salaries. Is that true of these bonuses? That's the really interesting thing about this round of bonuses when firms announce bonuses or even salary increases, they're pretty much typically isolated to major markets like New York or San Francisco or Chicago. But this time what we're seeing is that they're permeating out to places you wouldn't necessarily expect, like Minneapolis, for example. A big law firm is handing out bonuses, market bonuses in Minneapolis or Seattle, even down in Atlanta, for example, which is really unique. And part of that goes back to just the competition for associates, but also firms now because of remote working are able to hire associates to sit in different markets than they typically would. Is it just the big law firms, the top 100 that are doing this? Yeah. So this is fairly isolated to the top 100. I believe there's over 60 firms have decided to match this scale. But what we are seeing is down market pressure because of the amount of money that is being thrown at associates. The demand for particularly corporate associates is so high that law firms are willing to shell out top dollar, for example, capital markets associate perhaps residing in Denver. And what that does is that affects local and regional law firms because they're pulling from their talent pool. We haven't seen any compensation changes in mass at local firms or regional firms, but it's definitely something law firm leaders are thinking about in those markets for sure. 
But you talked to one associate, unnamed <laughs> associate, who said, I was having such bad days and nights where I felt like I wasn't being treated as a human. We all know what we signed up for, but you can't work seven days a week nonstop. So even the money isn't enough to keep some associates. Yes, some associates are leaving. I mean, the tricky thing with big laws, attrition is built into the model. So at firms, they bring first years in knowing that a portion of them, a percentage of them will leave year after year, typically around third, fourth year after their loans are paid off, they'll go and do something else. A lot of them will move in-house. There's a plethora of choices for them. But the amount of work that associates, particularly corporate associates, are being called upon to do has led a lot of them to question their future a lot sooner than perhaps they would have. Just the mountain of work is forcing them to ask whether or not this is sustainable whether or not they can keep going like this, whether the money is worth it in the end. And some are saying, no, it's not. That is something that big law is going to have to really confront. Is money enough to keep these folks happy and in the profession, especially after they've spent so much money training and recruiting them? Thanks, Megan. That's Megan Tribe of Bloomberg Law. Johnson & Johnson will have to pay $2.1 billion to 20 women after the Supreme Court refused to consider its objections to a St. Louis jury's 2018 finding that its iconic baby powder was contaminated with asbestos and helped cause ovarian cancer. Joining me is Professor Richard Osnes of the University of Kentucky Law School. This is a staggering amount, especially the punitive damages. Why do you think the justices didn't take this case? Well, who knows? Possibly they're just tired of hearing cases involving either personal jurisdiction or more likely punitive damages. They've issued a a series of opinions over the years on the due process aspects of excessive punitive damage awards, and they may have felt that it was time to move on to something else. They're pretty picky about taking cases on cert for discretionary review. It's a a very small percentage of the petitions that they get are actually acted upon. So this is one that didn't make the cut. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the arguments that J&J put forth in order to try to get the court to take the case. So Mm -hmm. they said the trial was unfair, and it was two dozen plaintiffs from 12 different states. Does that sound like a good argument Well, uh, I think it does. Now, I'm not an expert in civil procedure, so as far as the technical requirements for personal jurisdiction are concerned, it struck me as being a bit of a a stretch, but I'm told by my civil procedure colleagues that uh, uh, especially state courts are are pretty uh, generous when it comes to allowing non-residents to participate in, in cases of this sort. But in terms of just gut reaction, the fairness issue. Uh, it, yeah, it seems that it's hard enough to defend a case like this. And when you have 22 plaintiff's lawyers coming after you, that uh, makes it all the more difficult, as the defendants pointed out. Well, what boggled my mind is the judge needed five hours to instruct the jury. Yes, that's how you wonder what the jury instruction sounded like. It seems to me, uh, of course, it uh, took the appellate court 100 pages to write an opinion. So it was a complicated case, obviously. But yeah, I don't think the average jury is likely to sit still for five hours and and absorb uh, instructions of that sort. 
Another thing that Johnson & Johnson said is that the jury awarded each plaintiff the same thing so that Johnson & Johnson said, well, they didn't consider the harm to each individual plaintiff. Is that a problem? Well, it certainly doesn't look uh, look very good when you're talking about personal injuries. You know, they're going to vary. Uh, you know, some people might have had to undergo chemotherapy. Some some might have died, uh, but it's unlikely that they were all exactly the same. So at least in theory, the compensatory awards should have reflected those differences. The major part of this was the punitive damages. And mm-hmm. the appellate court did knock down the punitive damages. Has the Supreme Court said what punitive damages should be in comparison to the compensatory? Yes, they have. Uh, Of course, they don't lay down an ironclad rule, but there is language in some of the Supreme Court cases saying it shouldn't be more than 10 times, and a more reasonable amount would be maybe four times the compensatory awards, at least when the compensatory awards are substantial as opposed to nominal. And I I didn't do the math, but it appears to me, just eyeballing it, that the punitive awards were considerably larger than that. The attorney for J&J, former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, argued in his brief that they put dozens of plaintiffs on the stand to discuss their experiences with cancer, and the jury awards billions of dollars in punitive damages supposedly to punish petitioners. Lawyers can then follow this script and file the same claims with new plaintiffs and seek new outsized awards over and over again. And J&J is facing more than 26,000 similar cases. So what does that mean for those future cases? Well, one of the factors that the court, um, the Supreme Court mentioned was that uh, you don't want to award multiple punitive awards when it that you have to take account of what's already been awarded so it doesn't get totally out of hand, which is, I think, what J&J is concerned with. So it, it may be that subsequent awards, might, punitive awards, might be less. But I wouldn't take that to the bank. Um, if the court is sending a signal that it's not going to intervene in these cases, uh, then I would say J&J is in a world of hurt, especially if most of the cases are being tried in New Jersey. I think that's a fairly plaintiff-oriented state. And the scenario is is pretty bad for in terms of what J&J did. It, at least it really sounds bad. So they could be in for a lot of uh, very substantial punitive awards in the future. So- it certainly will encourage more uh, suits to be brought, too. What's the defendant's strategy in cases like this where they're facing allegations of mass torts? Well, it's uh, it's an uphill battle for the defendant. Uh, I think uh, the strategy, which didn't work in this particular case, but is, is typical, the typical approach that defendants take is to uh, try to get the case dismissed before it gets anywhere near a jury. And of course, they made motions at the appropriate times to dismiss the case and, and um, uh that was rejected by the trial court. But I think the causation argument is a a pretty good argument. Uh, The amounts of asbestos in the uh, talc was very small. You know, the experts disagreed to some extent about whether these concentrations of asbestos could cause ovarian cancer or not. In other words, J&J uh, tried to uh, unsuccessfully in this case, but focus on the causation, the lack of scientific proof, 
as opposed to the nature of their marketing tactics, which were pretty bad. But uh, one of the things that happens, of course, is that once there are a series of verdicts for the plaintiff, and especially when they're high-profile ones, as was the case here, the word gets around, and plaintiff's lawyers will have a uh, a way of slipping that in if they can, uh, that, oh, you know, they've been sued many times before and, and have lost. And that's a pretty strong signal to the jury saying, go ahead, lay it on. You know, um, they're bad guys, and there seems to be a consensus that they are. Does an award like this, followed by the Supreme Court refusing to take the case, how hard does that make settling other cases for J&J? Well, it's easy to settle, the theory at least. The question is, how much are you going to settle for? (laughs) The plaintiffs try to value the case. What is it worth? That is, how much is is the plaintiff likely to get if the case goes to trial? And and I'd say that amount has gone substantially up as a result of this. So that means that the plaintiffs are going to insist on more money in order to settle than they perhaps would have a couple of weeks ago. That's Professor Richard Osnes of the University of Kentucky Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every week, night at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.